0: All right, 1 Peter chapter 3, I feel like I drew the short straw as we come through and walk through the book of 1 Peter. I honestly, full cards on the table, I wanted to skip over the first half of 1 Peter 3 and just get to the second part, right? That was my, I was like, let's just, no one will know, no one will know. <laughs> but many of you would send me an email going, why didn't you cover the first part of 1 Peter 3? So, you know what? In all honesty, when we go through books of the Bible, that's part of why we go through books of the Bible, right? So we don't just sort of hop around to the more comfortable sections of scripture. We want to be able to look at all of it. What does God's word have to say to us? What does God's word have to teach us? How can we learn and grow from it together? And so uh, I'm going to read 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7 to start with. Um, if you promise not to get angry and storm out and leave, and then we're going to talk about a few, uh, a few things and unpack this together uh, just a little bit, Okay. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. I would remind you that is not a term of deity. It was more a term of just respect for him. Husbands, I don't recommend you try that. (coughs) And you are her children. If you do good and you do not fear anything, that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor. I underline that. We're going to come back and talk about what that looks like. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay, well, someone forgot to tell our our boy Peter that this is 2023, and you just can't say some stuff like that, right? Whenever we cover text like this, and there are a number of texts like this in the New Testament that say things like, wives, be subject to your husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands. Calling the woman the weaker vessel, it's like a big no-no, right? Um, there's texts, we'll look at it in a little bit, that talk about, uh, I do not permit a woman to, to preach or speak or hold any authority over a man. And so there are these rather harsh-sounding texts um, throughout the New Testament, and again, we, we, we're very, like, honest about, like, we don't get to read Scripture and just rip out the pages we don't agree with and, and only follow the stuff we like, right? And so we want to we just kind of unpack and talk about what this looks like. But whenever we approach texts like this, it always brings up this debate that has gone on for quite some time and been heightened in more recent years um, as to the roles of women in the family and in the church, specifically, uh, the roles of women in the family and in the church according to scripture. And so um, what I want to do this this morning is I want to kind of walk through just a little bit of, there's two different views on this. Um, to be clear, we believe, this is open-handed, right? Open-handed, There are, there's two different views that we believe are biblical. We say this in our Discover the Vista classes, right? We're not telling you which camp you have to be in or how you have to look at it, but what we don't often do is kind of walk through, when we say that they're both biblical, some people, if you've been raised in a particular way, or you've already formed a pretty firm opinion on some of this, you tend to always go to verses that align with your narrative. They, you always, we all do this, we tend to go to verses or, or, or things that sort of align with what we believe to be true, and we often ignore or don't look at verses that may um, say something different. And so what I want to do is just kind of briefly, high level, walk through a few of the bigger arguments for both biblical complementarianism and then biblical egalitarianism. So complementarianism is the belief that that God created both men and women in his image and likeness. They are both equal in dignity, value, and worth, but that God has ordained that men should be the leaders in their home, of their families, and specifically the leaders then in the church, and that God challenges men to step up and to lead in that way. Um, I say biblical before it because there is an unhealthy, unbiblical version of complementarianism where it's all about touting, I'm in charge, I deserve respect, uh, uh, it's kind of lording over. That is That is, um, listen, toxic masculinity is a thing. All right. And and that is not a healthy form of compliment. That is not what I would call a biblical version of complementarianism. Jesus tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Jesus sacrificed, served, gave himself up for the church. Okay. So any version of complementarianism that starts with I'm in charge, I'm the boss, you've already lost the biblical argument because that's not what what a biblical version of complementarianism is, right? There's also the other side of this would be a biblical egalitarianism. Biblical egalitarianism says that God created men and women in his image and likeness, equal in dignity, value, and worth as well, but that in Christ, there is no such hierarchy that men and women can and should lead in all facets, all capacities, all titles uh, together. That, that in Christ there shouldn't be any more uh, hierarchy a- at all. And so these are two um, legitimate options and I wanna just kind of lay out. Now I say biblical before egalitarianism for the same reasons. There is an unhealthy non-biblical egalitarianism that moves more into a very progressive kind of feminism where it's like, women, like keep men in their place, put men down. Um, Women tell I'm the boss. I should be in charge. Like that's an unhealthy version of egalitarianism. So what I want to do really quick, I say really quick, it'll probably be most of my sermon. Uh, I want to kind of walk through what some of those arguments are. Because again, if you're like me, I grew up in in an environment that kind of taught me and reinforced one view. and, And I thought everybody else is just unbiblical. Or Maybe you were raised in, the, in another, you thought, you thought, man, this is absolutely right. And everybody over there, they just, they must hate women. Right? And so what I wanna just kind of walk through a few of the bigger arguments. So before I get into that, I'll just say this. Historically, wherever Christianity has spread in the world, the, the, the rights um, and the status of women has improved and increased, okay? Just know that. Um, that, 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 that some people wanna say, well, Christianity just always wants to keep women in their place historically, that is verifiably not true. That wherever Christianity spread in the ancient world, the role and status and rights of women has always improved and gotten better, okay? Um, so let me just talk for a little bit. I'll start with complementary, a biblical complementarianism, right? So all of you that are egalitarians in the room, breathe deeply, let it out, right? Right, it's gonna be, put your seatbelt on. It's gonna be okay, right? Let me just talk about some of the, the biblical um, kind of big, big picture things for those that would say biblical complementarianism, all right? First of all, uh, complementarians would start in the very beginning in the book of Genesis, and they would say, God clearly creates Adam first, God creates man first, and an argument can be made from scripture that God holds man to a greater or higher degree of responsibility before God, specifically for their family. There are some things you can point to in families of the Old Testament where this appears to be the case. Most complementarians would go to Genesis and say, here's the thing, when when Eve is deceived and eats from the tree that God said not to eat from, the text says that she takes of the fruit and then she gives some to Adam who is there, God comes looking not for Eve but for Adam. He doesn't come asking first, where Eve, Eve, what have you done? He comes and says, Adam, where are you? He asks Adam. So there seems to be this idea from a complementarian perspective that God holds men to a, a higher degree of responsibility before the Lord, even for, for their families, okay? So that's where a lot of complementarians would, would start, Number two, get into the New Testament, Jesus chose 12 guys to be his disciples, okay? Uh, these were all men. These are men that would, he would teach and he would train for ministry. Jesus knew that these 12 would be the ones that go on to uh, found and lead the church. And so the argument from a complementary side would be, listen, um, clearly Jesus wanted men to be the leaders in the church, to be the pastors and the elders, that's who his disciples were. He didn't have any uh, women that were in the, the official listing of the 12 disciples. They were all men. One of the kind of arguments from egalitarians would be, well, that's clearly because that was not culturally appropriate. Back then, rabbis didn't have women disciples. Um, and again, there's, there's, you can go back and forth. We could probably do this all day. The only pushback to that would be Jesus did a lot of things that were not culturally appropriate for rabbis. He broke a lot of norms, a lot of rules, a lot of customs. He hung out with tax collectors and sinners, which was considered, you don't, you don't do that. He met a rather promiscuous woman at the well in broad daylight and carried on a conversation with her. Another no-no for a rabbi, teacher. You don't do that. And so the point being that Jesus had no problem breaking a lot of other norms culturally but he did not choose um, any women to officially be in in his 12 that would go on and lead and found the church. So that's one of the arguments from a complementarian perspective. Another one would be that there are numerous New Testament texts, uh, both Paul, Peter, several of the New Testament writers, that again, we've referred to a lot of these, where there are some pretty, seem to be pretty clear verses um, about about wives being subject to and submitting to, We'll read one in in First Timothy. In fact, we can throw up First Timothy chapter two verse twelve. First Timothy chapter two verse twelve. This one always gets sent to me after like you know Sarah or Sydney or somebody preaches. Someone always sends me this verse. It's always great, right? First Timothy two verse twelve. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man; rather, she is to remain quiet. Seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? I mean, it seems pretty clear. There's a lot of verses like this. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, Timothy, Titus. There's a lot of verses throughout the New Testament. And again, we don't get to just go, I don't like that. Throw that one away, right? There are a lot of verses in the New Testament that, that, that say things along those lines that complementarians would say, look, it's, it seems to be that this is God's will for the church, God's plan for the church, okay? And so those verses are... In fact, there. And then finally, um, I would say that um, there is no biblical or historical evidence. Um, Complementarians would say this: that there is no biblical or historical evidence that a, a woman held the title or position of of pastor, elder in the New Testament church. There's just no there's no example biblically or historically of that being the case. And so, complementarians would simply cite like church history and church precedent for why biblical complementarianism is, is what God, is God's will and God's plan. Okay. All right. That's complementarianism. Um, again, there's a lot of others. Complementarians can have a lot of other, uh, there's a lot of other things they could point to, but we don't have time. So all of you egalitarians can take your seatbelts off, right? You can unclench your, your fists now. All of you complementarians, buckle up, right? Buckle up because there, there are some arguments biblically for the other perspective as well. All right. So for biblical egalitarianism, one of the things that those that are of this uh, persuasion would point to is also back in Genesis, and they would say patriarchy, which is sort of the, um, like the precedent it, it, it's, uh, of, of men kind of dominating society, like a, a male-dominated society, like men being the, the leaders and all that stuff, that patriarchy um, is in fact a result of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. So that that was not God's original design, but rather once Eve eats of the fruit of the tree, um, God comes, he pronounces the curse on all of creation. And one of the things he says to Eve is, um, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, right? But that is a product of the fall. That is a result of sin. When Jesus comes, he goes to a cross, he dies on the cross. What he's doing is he is making right what went wrong at the fall that he is setting us free from the curse of sin and that in the church, we are to be a picture or a snapshot of the future and coming kingdom of God in which there will be no patriarchy, they would say. And so if in the church, we're a snapshot, we are building the kingdom and a picture of the future kingdom of God, then, then we should not have some like um, you know, status for men that we don't have for women. That, in other words, patriarchy is a result of the fall and that in the church, um, Jesus sets us free from, from all of that. That would be be one of their first arguments. Number two, egalitarians would say, Jesus, in fact, did have women followers. Um, A follower of Jesus was a disciple. And while they might not have been listed among the official 12, if you read through the gospels, you'll see that there were several women in the group that always were following Jesus along with the disciples. Mary and Martha are two great examples. There were some others. Um, There were always women in that company, serving, ministering, helping. In fact, they would also say that women essentially were the first apostles. Apostle means eyewitness to the resurrected Lord. So they were the first apostles and the first evangelists. So women are the ones in every gospel account that discover the empty tomb. They discover the empty tomb. They're the first ones Jesus reveals himself to, and they're the first ones to go tell anybody about the resurrected Lord. And so they would point to the fact that essentially women are, I mean, let's be honest, like the resurrection of Jesus is the most significant event. It is the event on which our faith is founded and a strong egalitarian would say, listen, we have the women to thank for that. And so they would point to the, that, that fact as well. In addition, another point would be that they would acknowledge the text in the New Testament that say these very direct things, um, they would say, yeah, those texts are certainly there. Those letters were certainly written. They would say, however, in those same letters, there are a number of other things that are stated in those letters that we clearly write off as cultural. There are several things mentioned in those same letters that we quickly go, well, that was obviously just a cultural thing. We just read in First Peter um, chapter 3, some of that stuff. It's also the same thing over, uh, we read... We read uh, 1 Timothy 2, verse 12 a while ago. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Sounds pretty clear. Just so you know, when you send me that verse after one of our ladies preaches, I'm going to send back to you acknowledgement. Got it? Take a look at at 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Literally three verses before that one. Okay? Three verses before that one, Paul writes this likewise also women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair gold pearls costly attire we read very much the same thing over in first peter that we just looked at a minute ago clearly most of us go that was cultural no one cares if you braid your hair short hair long hair none of that none of that really matters right how you style, like I'm guessing most women in churches all across, like everywhere, you might throw on like some earrings and a a gold necklace or something. I don't know. You might have some pearls somewhere. Like most of us would go, that's not a big deal. Like that's all cultural. In that day and time, it was usually the prostitutes that braided their hair and wore the fancy stuff to get attention from the men. And so clearly they're writing going, hey, the women in the church, godly women should not, should not be like that. But we would all look at that and go, that's, that's just a cultural thing. We don't, we, don't, we don't like have bouncers at our doors going up, oh, your hair's braided, get out, right? We don't, we don't do that because that's cultural. So here's the question. Why is it that those verses all pretty much universally agree are cultural, but then three verses later, the same letter written to the same people at the same time, we quickly go, well, that is clearly binding for all churches across all times and all generations. See how we'd play that game? Like, we, It's just one of those things to point out, like there is some inconsistency there when we start to point out what is binding and what is not binding. There's at least some room for discussion in that, okay? And then finally, I would say that Paul um, often, if you look um, in his writings, in the book of Acts in particular, you'll see some things where there were a number of women that were used in ministry in leadership in the church, there weren't there weren't any that were like the lead pastor or elder, but there were some that were used in a variety of other uh, other capacities. There are women like Phoebe, who was a deaconess, official position, a deaconess in the church. There's a lady named Junia, who was um, it says first among the apostles. Some complementarians have tried to say, well, it was probably a man named Junius, but that the s got left off, and so it shows. Listen, you can you can play that game, but there's no like. Historical, like it's it's in the text. It says Junia, which was a female. Um, there is a, a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. And what's interesting about them is Priscilla, the wife, is always mentioned first. Normally, you would mention the husband and then the wife. The person that maybe 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 Priscilla was a stronger believer. Maybe she was more of, more of a leader. But whenever Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned, Priscilla, the wife, is always mentioned always mentioned first, um, which may meant that she was a better a leader in some capacity. There was a lady named Anna mentioned in the New Testament who it says was a prophetess. Um, If a prophet is someone who speaks for God to the people, then a prophetess would be a woman that does the same thing. Um, Again, some complementarians would say, well, most likely she only taught other women. And I always want to go again, that you can believe that. And that may be true, but that's not what the text says. The text doesn't say, and she only taught the other women. It just says that she was a prophetess. And so, my point is simply that there is room for some disagreement here. There is biblical reason. And again, we're not telling you which camp you need to land in and, and this is more right than that. There's, there's two legitimate biblical options here. Two legitimate biblical options. And I always like to kind of lay that out whenever texts like this, like this come up. Because um, we'll have people that will literally, the minute uh, uh, we, you know, Someone in our, our church, one of the women in our church preaches, they'll send me the text and say, we're not biblical. Or when they find out we don't have women elders, they'll be like, you don't care about or support or promote women. We've had people leave our church for both reasons. We're not complementary enough. We're not egalitarian enough, right? Because it's not crystal clear, it goes in our open hand, which means there's room for some disagreement here. There's room for some disagreement. We admittedly walk a bit of a middle ground. We have women that serve on our staff as pastors They administer sacraments. They preach and teach, sometimes on Sundays, but across our young adult college student ministries, kids that that do all of those things. Some would say, well, that's very egalitarian of you. Y'all must be an egalitarian church in some ways. And then we have um, our our lead pastors are now and have always been males, and our elders are all men. And some would, because we find a strong precedent for that in the New Testament. And some would say, well, that's very complimentary. Y'all are a complementarian church. And I'm like, well, yeah, in, in some ways we are. We walk a bit of a middle ground, and we just we're honest about that. We're honest about that because we think it's open-handed. It's open-handed, and we're going to practice it like it's open-handed, right? And so, whenever texts like this come up, I always feel like I want to I want to share that um, just so that you know. Like I don't. If you've formed an opinion, that's fine. But what we don't want to do is be people that simply cast stones at the other side, calling them unbiblical or 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 calling you don't you don't love and support. Like we just we tend to get our narrative and then and then just throw stones at the other side. And we want to walk in, in unity in that. And so, specifically back to 1 Peter 3, that was all my introduction, by the way. <laughs> I'm going to have to really hurry here. Uh, in this particular text, um, it appears that Peter is writing to women who are in the church, who are saved, who are um, in the church, but but their husbands are not. Their husbands are, are lost. And so, he's basically saying, like, in order... Um, you know, you you'd be subject to them um, in order to win them over, which makes sense, right? Like if if you're um, a couple in that first, you don't, if you're a guy and you don't you don't care anything about Christianity, your wife's going to this new thing called the church. All right, I don't even know what that is, some group that's meeting. Sure, you go ahead and go, and then she comes back from that thing and she starts, you know, touting her rights in Christ and how I don't have to be under you anymore, and Jesus has set me free from all that, like. That husband, you think he's going to be like, oh, well, this sounds like a really awesome group. I would love to go to be a part of that, right? He's probably going to go, I don't, I don't want you going to that. I, don't, I certainly don't want to go to that, right? So it makes sense. Peter's literally saying, listen, ladies, if you've given your life to Jesus, live with, with a humble spirit, like a contrite spirit. Your goal is to win your husband to the Lord, not to argue and complain and criticize and rebuke. That's, that's never going to win him over. So Peter's simply saying, look, be subject so that you might lead him to the Lord by the way, your demeanor and the way that you live your life. That's in context what Peter is saying. Um, In this whole section here on marriage, what Peter's essentially getting at, he's urging couples to show honor to one another. By wives being subject to and submitting to, that's a way that you show honor. He literally says it in verse 7 for husbands. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor. Honor, showing honor to one another. Marriage is one of the greatest opportunities that God gives us in this life to learn to be more like Jesus. Marriage is one of the greatest opportunities that God gives us in this life where we can learn and practice being more Christ-like because marriage is about loving and sacrificing and showing honor to one another. When there is a marriage with a great deal of honor, that is a marriage that is, that is healthy and successful. When there is no honor for one another, the opposite of that is contempt. You show me a marriage with a great deal of contempt for one another, and I'll show you a marriage that is heading for a lot of problems, right? Showing honor means you elevate that person, you elevate the other person, you, you hold them in a high regard. Contempt is the opposite. Contempt is, I, I can't even be around them anymore, right? We wanna work on showing honor to one another in our marriages, right? How do we do that? Let me just give you a few things really quick. There's a lot of ways you can show honor to other people. This, is, this works in marriage. If you're single, um, these are some things that'll work with, with other people. If you wanna learn to show honor to other people, there are some ways you can do that. One is simply by listening to them and seeking to understand. Nothing is, nothing is more dishonoring than, than feeling like you're not being heard. They don't care what you think. They avoid you. They ignore you. They put you in your... Like, if you can't learn to listen and seek to understand, um, and you're, you're constantly cutting off, or like, you're not, you're not showing honor. You're not showing honor. Learning to show honor means that you learn to listen with an understanding spirit. I, I want to I know kind of what you're going through. I want to I I hear you out. You can learn to, to listen. Another one is just appreciating right? Just, just appreciating your spouse, being grateful, being thankful for them, telling them, this is, this is, this is what I, uh, I'm so grateful for. I'm grateful that you are this. I'm grateful that you do these things. I'm, man, I, I noticed when you did this and that was amazing. Like just being grateful and being appreciative for your spouse is a great way to show honor to them. Um, you can serve them, right? Jesus talked about learning to be the least of these, Um, Ephesians, Paul writes, husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church. He served the church, right? If we would argue in our marriages about who gets to show more honor and who gets to serve more and stop arguing about who gets to be in charge, marriages would be a lot better off, right? Learn to serve one another. Learn to give yourself for the good of your spouse. How about building them up, edifying them, encouraging them, affirming them, right? Build them up, affirm them. Um, people need to be affirmed. People need to be edified. Um, don't be the kind of person, the kind of spouse that's constantly nitpicking and pointing out all the stuff they do wrong. Most of us are painfully aware of all the stuff we do wrong, right? Like I don't need more people pointing that out, right? But I I need people to affirm. if you're in a marriage, your spouse needs your affirming words in their life. And it's a way to show honor. And then finally, I would say speaking positively about your spouse to other people when they're not around is one of the great ways to show honor, right? What you say about them to others when they're not there really reveals what you think of them. And so if you're the kind of person that when you're with your boys or your girlfriends and you're, you know, are you putting your spouse down? Well, they're just, they don't, they don't do anything. Oh, the old ball and chain back home. She's just like, if you're, there's a way that you can talk that is not honoring. When you're around other people, it's not an honoring thing to do. But if you're around others and you can really, Man, they are wonderful. I love my spouse. They're so great at this. They're so wonderful at that. They help in so many ways. Like there's a way you can build them up. So one of the greatest ways to honor your spouse is by speaking positively about them when you're around other people. All right, I really want to get to the second part of this text. So I'm gonna really have to fly here. Here we go, verse eight. Finally, all of you. So he's done talking to husbands and wives. He's like the whole church, everybody listen. Listen have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly or sisterly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Like if we can learn to walk in those things right there, then the open-handed stuff will not be a big deal, right? If we can learn to have unity together, if we can learn to have sympathy, like I see what you're, I understand. I'm, if we can learn to have a brotherly and sisterly love for one another in spite of differences, a tender heart and a humble mind, then we wouldn't really be spending all of our time arguing about sort of peripheral things, right? He goes on in verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And then he quotes from Psalms right here, beginning in verse 10. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good and let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and the ears are upon their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, uh, nor be troubled. Verse 15 is probably the most popular text in First Peter chapter 3. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. To anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. I'll just say this. When it comes to, again, this is a great text, First uh, Peter three fifteen. But I got to just tell you, I've heard this verse preached and taught a lot, kind of pulled out of its context and used as a verse that is all about like defending the faith against non-Christians, right? And so what we've done is we've taken this verse and we've turned it into a verse about apologetics, like no theology and no verses so you can argue with someone who doesn't believe and win them over. Can I just be honest with you? I have never in my life ever seen anybody won to Christ after an argument, never, never. Like I've never seen another religion you argue like someone's like, oh, you know, that after you've yelled at me, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm on your side now. Like that doesn't work. That never works. You don't you don't argue someone into faith with Jesus, right? This verse is not about apologetics. It's not. Peter assumed that Christians would live their lives differently. That they would live out some of the stuff he just talked about. They would live with unity together in spite of disagreement. That's not normal in the world right? They would live with sympathy towards one another, brotherly or sisterly love. They would live with a tender heart and a humble mind, not repaying evil for evil. And so Peter is assuming that Christians are going to live their lives in such a way that others in the world might just ask, hey, what's, what's going on with, with, with you? You seem to have some peace and some hope. Like, I don't, I want that. Like, I, I, want, I want some of that in my life, right? And so Peter's going, look, if you live your life this way, be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you." Be ready to talk about Jesus and what he's done. Be ready to point someone to the gospel. That's what the verse is about. It's not about arguing your faith with someone. It's not about, you know, making sure that the non-Christian person has it crammed down their throat in such a way that they believe automatic. No, it's not a verse about apologetics. It's a verse about being ready to talk about the hope that is in you because Peter just believed that Christians are gonna live with a certain degree of hope. That's what we wanna do, right? Let's pray together this morning father thank you for today thank you for your word thank you for the truth of your word god even areas of your word that often as we read them are are hard they're hard to grasp they're hard to understand they're often hard god even to practically live out but god we are grateful for all of your word and i pray that we would be people that ultimately we submit to your word and your will and your way um, and God, so I pray you'd just convict us quite honestly of, of times and seasons when we have sort of thought that my way, our way is better and that you would allow us, God, to walk in humility, in unity, that we would have um, a humble heart and humble spirit, God, that ultimately we would live out the hope that is in us and we would be ready to point people to that hope because of the way we live. And pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen.